Chapter twenty seven of Sixty Years in Southern California, eighteen fifty three to nineteen thirteen, by Harris Newmark. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Chapter twenty seven Coming of the Iron Horse, eighteen sixty nine. The Los Angeles and San Pedro Railroad continued in eighteen sixty nine to be the local theme of most importance, although its construction did not go on as rapidly as had been promised. The site for a depot, it is true, had been selected, but by June 14th only six miles were finished. Farmers were loud in complaints that they had been heavily taxed, and in demanding that the road be rushed to completion in order to handle the prospectively large grain crop. Additional gangs were therefore employed, and by the 20th of July seven more miles of track had been laid. In the meantime, the Sunday school at Compton enjoyed the first excursion, the members making themselves comfortable on benches and straw in some freight cars. As the work on the railroad progressed, stages, in addition to those regularly running through from Los Angeles to Wilmington, began connecting with the trains at the temporary terminus of the railroad. People went down to Wilmington to see the operations, not merely on the track, but in the machine shops where the cars for freight, express, baggage, smoking, and passenger service, designed by A. A. Polhamus, the machinist, were being built under the superintendence of Samuel Atkinson, who had been brought west by the San Francisco and San Jose Valley Railroad because of a reputation for railroad experience enjoyed by few, if by any other persons, on the coast. The company also had a planing mill and wheelwright shop under the charge of George W. Oden. By the 1st of August, both the railroad and connecting stages were advertising Sunday excursions to the beach, emphasizing the chance to travel part of the way by the new means of transit. Curiously, however, visitors were allowed to enjoy the sea breezes but a short time. Arriving at Wilmington about ten or half past, they were compelled to start back for Los Angeles by four in the afternoon. Many resorters still patronized the old service, and frequently the regular stages, racing all the way up from the steamer, would actually reach the city half an hour earlier than those transferring the passengers from the railway terminus which was extended by august first to a point within four miles of town when eighteen miles had been finished it was reported that general stoneman and his post band would make an excursion on the first train accompanied by general banning and leading citizens of the town but strong opposition to the company laying its tracks through the centre of the lane now alameda street having developed the work was stopped by injunction the road had been constructed to a point opposite the old Wolfskill home, then far from town, until the matter was settled. Passengers and freight were unloaded then. Great excitement prevailed here shortly after sundown on Wednesday evening, August 21st, when the mail stage, which had left for Gilroy but a short time before, came tearing back to town, the seven or eight passengers excitedly shouting that they had been robbed. The stage had proceeded but two miles from Los Angeles when four masked highwaymen stepped into the road and ordered, Hands up. Among the passengers was the well-known and popular Ben Truman, who, having learned by previous experience just what to do in such a ticklish emergency, and, being persuaded that the two barrels of cold steel had somewhat the proportions of a railway tunnel, sadly but promptly unrolled one hundred and eighty dollars in bills, and quite as sadly deposited, in addition, his favorite chronometer. The highwayman picked up the watch, looked it over, shook his head, and, thanking Ben, returned it, expressing the hope that whatever adversity might overwhelm him, he should never be discovered with such a timepiece. All in all, the robbers secured nearly two thousand dollars, but, strange to relate, they overlooked the treasure in the Wells Fargo chest, 
as well as several hundred dollars in greenbacks belonging to the government. Sheriff J.F. Burns and Deputy H.C. Wiley pursued and captured the robbers, and within about a week they were sent to the penitentiary. On the same evening, at high tide, the little steamer christened Los Angeles, and constructed by P. Banning and Company, to run from the wharf to the outside anchorage, was committed to the waters, bonfires illuminating quite distinctly both guests and the neighboring landscape, and lending to the scene a weird and charming effect. In a previous chapter I have given an account of Lady Franklin's visit to San Pedro and Los Angeles, and of the attention shown her. Her presence awakened new interest in the search for her lamented husband, and paved the way for the sympathetic reception of any intelligence likely to clear up the mystery. No little excitement, therefore, was occasioned eight years later by the finding of a document at San Buenaventura that seemed like a voice from the dead. According to the story told, as James Daly, of the lumber firm of Daly and Rogers, was walking on the beach on August 30th, he found a sheet of paper a foot square, much mutilated, but bearing in five or six different languages a still legible request to forward the memoranda to the nearest British consul or the Admiralty at London. Every square inch of the paper was covered with data relating to Sir John Franklin and his party, concluding with the definite statement that Franklin had died on June 11, 1847. Having been found within a week of the time that the remnant of Dr. Hall's party went in search of the explorer, had arrived home in Connecticut with the announcement that they had discovered seven skeletons of Franklin's men. This document, washed up on the Pacific coast, excited much comment. But I am unable to say whether it was ever accepted by competent judges as having been written by Franklin's associates. In 1869, the long-familiar adobe of José Antonio Carrillo was raised to make way for what, for many years, was the leading hotel of Los Angeles. This was the Pico House in its decline known as the National Hotel, which when erected on Main Street opposite the plaza at a cost of nearly $50,000, but emphasized in its contrasting showiness the ugliness of the neglected square. Some $35,000 were spent in furnishing the eighty-odd rooms, and no little splurge was made that guests could there enjoy the luxuries of both gas and baths. In its palmy days the Pico House welcomed from time to time travelers of wide distinction while many a pioneer, among them not a few newly wedded couples now permanently identified with Los Angeles or the Southland, look back to the hostelry as the one surviving building fondly associated with the olden days. Charles Knowlton was an early manager, and he was succeeded by Dunham and Schifflin. Competition in the blacking of boots enlivened the fall, the Hotel Lafayette putting boldly in printer's ink the question, Do you want to have your boots blacked in a cool private place? This challenge was answered with the following proclamation. Champion Boot Black. Boots blacked neater and cheaper than anywhere else in the city, at the Blue Wing Shaving Saloon by D. Jefferson. Brickmaking had become, by September, quite an important industry. Joe Mullally, whose brickyard was near the Jewish cemetery, then had two kilns with a capacity of 225,000, and in the following month he made over 500,000 brick. In course of time, the Los Angeles and San Pedro Railroad was completed to the Madigan lot, which remained for several years the Los Angeles terminus, and justly confident that the difficulty with the authorities would be removed, the company pushed work on their depot and put in a turntable at the foot of New Commercial Street. There was but one diminutive locomotive, though a larger one was on its way around the horn from the east, and still another was coming by the Continental Railway and every few days the little engine would go out of commission, so that traffic was constantly interrupted. 
At such times, confidence in the enterprise was somewhat shaken, but new rolling stock served to reassure the public. A brightly painted smoking car, with seats mounted on springs, was soon the talk of the town. I have spoken of J. J. Reynolds's early enterprise and the competition that he evoked. Toward the end of July he went up to San Francisco and outdid Hewitt by purchasing a handsome omnibus, suitable for hotel service, and also adapted to the needs of families or individuals clubbing together for picnics and excursions. This gave the first impetus to the use of the hotel buses, and by the first Sunday in September, when the cars from Wilmington rolled in bringing passengers from the steamer Orizaba, the travelers were met by omnibuses and coaches from all three hotels, the Belly Union, the United States, and the Lafayette. The number of vehicles, public and private, giving the streets around the railroad depot a very lively appearance. Judge W. G. Dryden, so long a unique figure here, died on September 10th, and A. J. King succeeded him as county judge. A notable visit to Los Angeles was that of Secretary William H. Seward, who in 1869 made a trip across the continent, going as far north as Alaska and as far south as Mexico, and being everywhere enthusiastically received. When Seward left San Francisco for San Diego, about the middle of September, he was accompanied by Frederick Seward and his wife, his son and daughter-in-law, General W. S. Rosecrans, General Morton C. Hunter, Colonel Thomas Sedgwick, and Senator S. B. Axtell, and the news of their departure having been telegraphed ahead, many people went down to greet them on the arrival of the steamer Orizaba. After the little steamer Los Angeles had been made fast to the wharf, it was announced, to everyone's disappointment, that the secretary was not coming ashore, as he wished to continue on his way to San Diego. Meanwhile, the Common Council had resolved to extend the hospitality of the city to the distinguished party, and by September 19th, posters proclaimed that Seward and his party were coming, and that citizens generally would be afforded an opportunity to participate in a public reception at the Bella Union on September 21st. A day in advance, therefore, the mayor and a committee from the council set out for Anaheim, where they met the distinguished statesman on his way, whence the party jogged along leisurely in a carriage and four until they arrived at the bank of the Los Angeles River, and there Seward and his friends were met by other officials and a cavalcade of eighty citizens led by the military band of drum barracks. The guests alighted at the Bella Union, and in a few minutes a rapidly increasing crowd was calling loudly for Mr. Seward. The secretary, being welcomed on the balcony by Mayor Joel H. Turner, said that he had been laboring under mistakes all his life. He had visited Rome to witness celebrated ruins, but he found more interesting ruins in the Spanish missions. Great cheers. He had journeyed to Switzerland to view its glaciers, but upon the Pacific coast he had seen rivers of ice two hundred and fifty feet in breadth, five miles long, and God knows how high. More cheers. He had explored Labrador to examine the fisheries but in alaska he found that the fisheries came to him hear hear and renewed applause he had gone to burgundy to view the most celebrated vineyards of the world but the vineyards of california far surpassed them all vociferous and deafening hurrahs and tossing of bouquets the next day the washington guests and their friends were shown about the neighborhood and that evening mr seward made another and equally happy speech to the audience drawn to the bella union by the playing of the band there were also addresses by the mayor, Senator Axtell, ex-Governor Downey, and others, after which, in good old American fashion, citizens generally were introduced to the associate of the martyred Lincoln. At nine o'clock a number of invited guests were ushered into the Bella Union's dining-room, where, at a bounteous repast, the company drank to the health of the secretary. This brought from the visitor an eloquent response with interesting local allusions. 
Secretary Seward remarked that he found people here agitated upon the question of internal improvements, for everywhere people wanted railroads. Californians, if they were patient, would yet witness a railroad through the north, another by the southern route, still another by the 35th parallel, a fourth by the central route, and lastly, as the old plantation song goes, one down the middle. California needed more population, and railroads were the means by which to get people. Finally, Mr. Seward spoke of the future prospects of the United States, saying much of peculiar interest in the light of later developments. We were already great, he affirmed, but a nation satisfied with its greatness is a nation without a future. We should expand, and as mightily as we could, until at length we had both the right and the power to move our armies anywhere in North America. As to the island lying almost within a stone's throw of our mainland, ought we not to possess Cuba, too? Other toasts, such as the mayor and common council, the pioneers, the ancient hospitality of California, the press, the wine press, and our wives and sweethearts, were proposed and responded to, much good feeling prevailing notwithstanding the variance in political sentiments represented by guests and hosts, and everyone went home, in the small hours of the morning, pleased with the manner in which Los Angeles had received her illustrious visitors. The next day Secretary Seward and party left for the north by carriages, rolling away toward Santa Barbara and the mountains so soon to be invaded by the puffing, screeching iron horse. Recollecting this banquet to Secretary Seward, I may add an amusing fact of a personal nature. Eugene Meyer and I arranged to go to the dinner together, agreeing that we were to meet at the store of S. Lazard and Company, almost directly opposite the Bella Union. When I left Los Angeles in 1867, evening dress was uncommon, but in New York I had become accustomed to its more frequent use. Rather naturally, therefore, I donned my swallowtail. Meyer, however, I found in a business suit, and surprised at my query as to whether he intended going home to dress. Just as we were, we walked across the street, and, entering the hotel, whom should we meet but ex-mayor John G. Nichols, wearing a grayish linen duster, popular in those days, that extended to his very ankles, while Pio and Andres Pico came attired in blue coats with big brass buttons. Meyer, observing the mayor's outfit, facetiously asked me if I still wished him to go home and dress according to Los Angeles fashion whereupon I drew off my gloves, buttoned up my overcoat, and determined to sit out the banquet with my claw-hammer thus concealed. Mr. Seward, it is needless to say, was faultlessly attired. The Spanish archives were long neglected until M. Kramer was authorized to overhaul and arrange the documents, and even then it was not until September 16th that the Council built a vault for the preservation of the official papers. Two years later, Kramer discovered an original proclamation of peace between the United States and Mexico. Elsewhere I allude to the slow development of Fort Street. For the first time, on the 24th of September, street lamps burned there, and that was from six to nine months after darkness had been partially banished from Nigger Alley, Los Angeles, Aliso, and Alameda Streets. Supplementing what I have said of the Los Angeles and San Pedro Railroad Depot, it was built on a lot fronting 300 feet on Alameda Street and having a depth of 120 feet, its situation being such that, after the extension of Commercial Street, the structure occupied the southwest corner of the two highways. Really it was more of a freight shed than anything else, without adequate passenger facilities. A small space at the north end contained a second story in which some of the clerks slept, and in a cramped little cage beneath, tickets were sold. By the way, the engineer of the first train to run through to this depot was James Holmes, although B.W. Colling ran the first train stopping inside the city limits. 
About this time, the real estate excitement had become still more intense. In anticipation of the erection of this depot, Commercial Street property boomed, and the first realty agents of whom I have any recollection appeared on the scene, Judge R. M. Widney being among them. I remember that two lots, one eighty by one hundred and twenty feet in size at the northwest corner of First and Spring Streets, and the other, having a frontage of only twenty feet on New Commercial Street, adjacent to the station, were offered simultaneously at twelve hundred dollars each. Contrary, no doubt, to what he would do today, the purchaser chose the Commercial Street lot, believing that location to have the better future. Telegraph rates were not very favorable in 1869 to frequent or verbose communication. Ten words sent from Los Angeles to San Francisco cost one dollar and a half, and fifty cents additional was asked for the next five words. After a while, there was a reduction of twenty-five percent in the cost of the first ten words and fifty percent on the second five. 2,400 voters registered in Los Angeles this year. In the fall, William H. Spurgeon founded Santa Ana some five miles beyond Anaheim on a tract of about 50 acres, where a number of the first settlers experimented in growing flax. It is not clear to me just when the rocky Arroyo Seco began to be popular as a resort, but I remember going there on picnics as early as 1857. By the late 60s, when Santa Monica Canyon also appeared to the lovers of sylvan life, the Arroyo had become known as Sycamore Grove, a name doubtless suggested by the numerous sycamores there, and Clovis F. Henriksen had opened an establishment including a little hotel, a dancing pavilion, a saloon, and a shooting alley. Free lunch and free beer were provided for the first day, and each Sunday thereafter in the summer season an omnibus ran every two hours from Los Angeles to the sycamores. After some years, John Rumpf and wife succeeded to the management, Frau Rumpf being a popular virtin. And then the Los Angeles Turnverein used the grove for its public performances, including gymnastics, singing, and the old-time sack racing and target shooting. James Miller Ginn, who had come to California in November 1863, and had spent several years in various counties of the state digging for gold and teaching school, drifted down to Los Angeles in October and was soon engaged as principal of the public school at the new town of Anaheim, remaining there in that capacity for twelve years, during part of which time he also did good work on the county school board. Under the auspices of the French Benevolent Society and toward the end of October, the cornerstone of the French hospital built on city donation lots, and for many years and even now one of the most efficient institutions of our city, was laid with the usual ceremonies. On October 9th, the first of the new locomotives arrived at Wilmington, and a week later made the first trial trip with a baggage and passenger car. Just before departure, a painter was employed to label the engine and decorate it with a few scrolls, when it was discovered too late that the artist had spelled the name Los Angelos. On October 23rd, two lodges of odd fellows used the railway to visit Bowen Lodge at Wilmington, returning on the first train up to that time, run into Los Angeles at midnight. October 26th was a memorable day, for on that date the Los Angeles and San Pedro Railroad Company opened the line to the public and invited everybody to enjoy a free excursion to the harbor. Two trains were dispatched each way, a second consisting of ten cars, and not less than 1,500 persons made the round trip. Unfortunately, it was very warm and dusty, but such discomforts were soon forgotten in the novelty of the experience. On the last trip back came the musicians, and the new Los Angeles depot having been cleared, cleaned up, and decorated for a dedicatory ball, there was a stampede to the little structure, filling it in a jiffy. Judge H. K. S. O. Melvaney, 
who first crossed the plains from illinois on horseback in eighteen forty nine came to los angeles with his family in november having already served four years as a circuit judge following his practice of law in sacramento he was a brother-in-law of l j rose having married in eighteen fifty miss annie wilhelmina rose upon his arrival he purchased the southwest corner of second and fort streets a lot one hundred and twenty by one hundred and sixty-five feet in size and there he subsequently constructed one of the fine houses of the period which was bought some years later by jotham bixby for about forty five hundred dollars after it had passed through various hands bixby lived in it for a number of years and then resold it in eighteen seventy two o'melvaney was elected judge of los angeles county and in eighteen eighty seven he was appointed superior judge h w o'melvaney his second son came from the east with his parents graduating in time from the los angeles high school and the state university now he is a distinguished attorney and occupies a leading position as public spirited citizen and a patron of the arts and sciences in his very readable work from east prussia to the golden gate frank le corvier credits me with having served the commonwealth as supervisor this is a slight mistake i was an unwilling candidate but never assumed the responsibilities of office in eighteen sixty nine various friends waited upon me and requested me to stand as their candidate for the supervisorship to which i answered that i would be glad to serve my district but that i would not lift a finger towards securing my election h abila was chosen with six hundred and thirty one votes e m sanford being a close second with six hundred and sixteen while five hundred and thirty seven votes were cast in my favor trains on the new railway began to run regularly on november first and there still exists one of the first timetables bearing at the head los angeles and san pedro railroad and a little picture of a locomotive and train at first the train scheduled for two stated round trips a day except on steamer days when the time was conditioned by the arrival and departure of vessels left for wilmington at eight o'clock in the morning and at one o'clock in the afternoon returning at ten in the morning and four in the afternoon the fare between los angeles and wilmington was one dollar and fifty cents with an additional charge of one dollar to the anchorage while on freight from the anchorage to los angeles the tariff was dry goods sixteen dollars per ton groceries and other merchandise five dollars and lumber seven dollars per thousand feet after the formal opening of the railroad a permanent staff of officers crews and mechanicians was organized the first superintendent was h w hawthorne who was succeeded by e e hewitt editor of the wilmington journal n a mcdonald was the first conductor sam butler was the first and for a while the only brakeman and the engineers were james mcbride and bill thomas the first local agent was john milner the first agent at wilmington john mccray the former was succeeded by john e jackson who from eighteen eighty to eighteen eighty two served the community as city surveyor worthy of remark perhaps as a coincidence is the fact that both milner and mccray ultimately became connected in important capacities with the farmers and merchants bank the first advertised public excursion on the los angeles and san pedro railroad after its opening was a trip to wilmington and around san pedro harbor arranged for november fifth eighteen sixty nine the cars drawn by the locomotive los angeles and connecting with the little steamer of the same name left at ten and returned at three o'clock in the afternoon two dollars was the round-trip fare while another dollar was exacted from those who went out upon the harbor in the late seventies a portuguese named fayol settled near what is now the corner of sixth and front streets san pedro and one linscow took up his abode in another shack a block away round these rude huts sprang up the neighborhoods of fayol and lindville since absorbed by san pedro 
probably the first attempt to organize a fire company for los angeles was made in 1869 when a meeting was called on saturday evening november 6th at buffum's saloon to consider the matter a temporary organization was formed with henry vortenberg as president w a mix vice president george m fall secretary and john h gregory treasurer an initiation fee of two dollars and a half and monthly dues of twenty-five cents were decided upon and j f burns b katz emile harris george pridham e b frink c d hathaway p thompson o w potter c m small and e c phelps were charter members a committee appointed to canvass for subscriptions made little progress and the partial destruction of rowan's american bakery in december demonstrating the need of an engine and hose cart brought out sharp criticism of los angeles's penuriousness about the middle of november daniel desmond who had come on october fourteenth of the preceding year opened a hat store on los angeles street near new commercial widely advertising the enterprise as a pioneer one and declaring perhaps unconscious of any pun that he proposed to fill a want that had long been felt the steamer orizaba which was to bring down desmond's good as ill luck would have it left half his stock lying on the san francisco pier and the opening so much heralded had to be deferred several weeks as late as eighteen seventy six he was still the only exclusive hatter here desmond died on january twenty third nineteen o three aged seventy years and was succeeded by his son c c desmond another son d j desmond is the well-known contractor toward the close of november joseph jolie a frenchman opened the chartres coffee factory on main street opposite the plaza and was the pioneer in that line he delivered to both stores and families and for a while seemed phenomenally successful but one fine morning in december it was discovered that the jolly joseph had absconded leaving behind numerous unpaid bills the first marble cutter to open a workshop in los angeles was named miller he came toward the end of eighteen sixty nine and established himself in the downy block prior to miller's coming all marble work was brought from san francisco or some source still further away and the delay and expense debarred many from using that stone even for the pious purpose of identifying graves with the growth of anaheim as the business centre of the country between the new san gabriel and the santa ana rivers sentiment had been spread in favor of the division of los angeles county and at the opening of the legislature of eighteen sixty nine to seventy anaheim had its official representative in sacramento ready to present the claims of the little german settlement and its thriving neighbors the person selected for this important embassy was major max von strobel and he inaugurated his campaign with such sagacity and energy that the bill passed the assembly and everything pointed to an early realization of the scheme it was not however until los angeles awoke to the fact that the proposed segregation meant a decided loss that opposition developed in the senate and the whole matter was held up strobel thereupon sent post haste to his supporters for more cash and efforts were made to get the stubborn senate to reconsider doubtless somebody else had a longer purse than strobel for in the end he was defeated and the germans dream did not come true until long after he had migrated to the realms that know no subdivisions one of the arguments used in favor of the separation was that it took two days time and cost six dollars for the round trip to the los angeles courthouse while another contention then regarded as of great importance was that the one coil of hose-pipe owned by the county was kept at los angeles strobel by the way desired to call the new county anaheim major von strobel was a very interesting character he was a german who had stood shoulder to shoulder with karl schurz and franz scheigel in the german revolution of eighteen forty eight 
and who after having taken part in the adventures of walker's filibustering expedition to nicaragua finally landed in anaheim where he turned his attention to the making of wine he soon tired of that and in eighteen sixty seven was found boring for oil on the brea ranch again meeting with reverses where others later were so successful he then started the movement to divide los angeles county and once more failed in what was afterward accomplished journalism in anaheim next absorbed him and having had the best of educational advantages strobel brought to his newspaper both culture and the experience of travel the last grand effort of this adventurous spirit was the attempt to sell santa catalina island backed by the owners strobel sailed for europe and opened headquarters near threadneedle street in london in a few weeks he had almost effected the sale the contract having been drawn and the time actually set for the following day when the money a cool two hundred thousand pounds was to be paid but no strobel kept tryst to carry out his part of the transaction only the evening before alone and unattended the old man had died in his room at the very moment when fortune for the first time was to smile upon him eighteen or twenty years later catalina was sold for much less than the price once agreed upon End of chapter 27